took me a few years to really get the confidence to go after the big fish. I had a very much like a, a very limited mentality on, on what was possible for me uh, in the beginning. And I actually, looking back, I really love that because I feel like I can relate to so many people out there that maybe feel the same way or have felt the same way. Um, I'm glad I didn't come right out of the gate swinging because if I can do it, I mean, I really started from such a low base level and my knowledge base and my, my self-confidence, like it was all, I kind of started from the bottom and worked my way up. And so I know that if I can do it, it's, it's open and it's possible to anybody. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. I get to have the pleasure today of interviewing Caleb Spears, a man who at the age of 19, we'll call it one month shy of 19, went from managing a Chick-fil-A to working with luxury buyers of real estate and buyers and sellers of real estate, which is absolutely nuts. So Caleb, what I want you to do today is I want you to take us into how did you get to a place where you were able to sell over $100 million of real estate by the age of 24? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Matt, I just appreciate you having me on today and the chance to get to share my story with the audience. And, uh, you know, it's obviously it's like anything, any any classic success story, if you want to call it that, where it built slowly over time and then all at once. And um, a lot of that was due to refining my business strategies, um, tracking my business, kind of kind of really dialing in the data piece and uh, really starting to go from in the beginning I had what I like to call a hobby because I, you know, I would set goals and I would kind of have these vague ideas of where I was going to go for that year and what I was going to do. And then eventually I really kind of got to the point where I could dial in my business and the analytics there and figure out the key metrics I needed to start tracking to really um, exponentially grow. And, and that was exactly what happened, thankfully. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about KPI. So a lot of times when I see business owners talk about KPIs and tracking, they're trying to run a ton of transactions you know, median price point and they're churning them out. You're doing average price points of three and a half million dollars. Yes, so sir. what do the KPIs, what do the things that you're looking to measure look like in your business? You know, I really think KPIs in real estate cross the price boundary. They cross over from primary, secondary markets. Really at the end of the day, it's the two most important ones are how many people are you talking to? And how many people out of, out of who you're talking to are you setting appointments with and actually getting FaceTime with? And so those are the two biggest KPIs for me. And obviously, you're right. When you have a high volume model, your metrics and, and, and the, the key, like you said, KPIs, key performance indicators, the, the actual targets for your KPIs that you're hitting might look different. You know, for me, I have a quality over quantity kind of model. Other people have a quantity model because that's what is best in their market. And there's zero wrong with that. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the fundamentals of selling real estate don't change, whether it's the price point, di different price points, different locations. I mean, I would say even around the world, like at the end of the day, selling real estate is selling real estate and it's little tweaks that kind of shift your business towards your actual market and your actual client base. But the fundamentals, the basics that you're building on are the same everywhere. So let's talk about, I mean, you're just fresh out of Chick-fil-A. You get in the real estate game. It's a month before you turn 19. Did you immediately from day one know, hey, I want to go after the big fish? No, I um, I started with the small fish, honestly. 
I, uh, I, it took me a few years to really get the confidence to go after the big fish. I had a very much like a, a very limited mentality on, on what was possible for me, uh, in the beginning. And I actually, looking back, I really love that because I feel like I can relate to so many people out there that maybe feel the same way or have felt the same way. Um, I'm glad I didn't come right out of the gate swinging because if I can do it, I mean, I really started from such a low base level and my knowledge base and my, my self-confidence, like it was all, I kind of started from the bottom and worked my way up. And so I know that if I can do it, it's, it's open and it's possible to anybody. So you're a couple years in at the ripe age of 21. What triggers the desire to level up the price point? You know, what really happened was my first year, I knew nothing. Like my brother's a very successful luxury agent and I was kind of following in his footsteps and learning from him. And I remember him asking me when I first started, he was like, hey, do you even know the difference between a townhome and a condo? And I was like, I, uh, one is a condo and one's a townhome. I mean, what else, what else is there to know? It's, I had no clue. And he asked me to do an MLS search for some client. And I, I mean, it took me like 30 minutes just to look up one neighborhood. And he was like, that should have taken you two minutes. I was like, I don't know. I'm just trying to figure it out from scratch. And so that first year I was just trying to figure out everything. I mean, from what a lender was to how, you know, real estate actually works and what's an earnest money deposit and what do title companies do and all these basic questions that a teenager coming out of high school that was managing a fast food restaurant has to figure out before they can even really get the ball rolling downhill. So that first year I did three and a half million in sales. It took me six months to make my first sale, um, which <laughs> was brutal, but we made it. We got there. And so I thought, all right, I've got my feet under me. I'm going to go into year two. This is when I was 20 years old. I was like, year two, I'm going to do 10 million, baby. And I did it. I did 10 and a half. I was like, yes. All right. Now I want to go play with the big boys. Now I want to do 25. And in year three, I did 12. And I was like, what, what gives? Like I set my goal the first time and I hit it. I set my goal the second time and I missed it by a huge margin. I missed it by half, right? What, what was the delta there? So I sat down with a mentor of mine who had done thousands of real estate transactions. He had built one of the most successful brokerages in the state of Alaska from scratch. Uh, just a brilliant business mind. And he advised me, hey, are you tracking your business? And I was like, I've got zero clue what you're talking about, dude. I don't even know what that means. And he goes, well, there's your problem. You're, you're not the problem. Your problem is your system. And he said, do me a favor. Just start tracking how many people you talk to a week. And I want you to try to talk to at least 50 people a week. Have, have 50 two-way conversations that might lead to a sale. And I was like, okay, I'll start doing that. So I started tracking that and he goes, great. Now that you're doing that consistently, I want you to start tracking the amount of appointments that you're setting. How many people are you seeing face to face? Okay, I'll start tracking that. And he goes, all right, aim for at least one a week, minimum. That's, that is the, like you're doing the bare minimum. I was like, all right, cool, sounds good. So I started tracking that. Well, pretty soon 50 got to be easy. One appointment a week got to be easy. So I started aiming for 75 and two, right? Eventually I got to be doing a hundred contacts a week, which was, that's a, that's a high pace. Like I don't recommend that output for many people because it, it really is, um, it's, it's a lot. It requires extreme focus, but I got extreme results and I tripled my business that year. I went from doing 10 and a half million to doing 35 million in one year by, by tracking those KPIs primarily. 
And so let's talk about how were you getting these people to have conversations? So part of it is past client relationships, right? Like I used to look back on people. I, I, I'm ashamed to say it, but I'm not afraid to say it. I was very transactional when I started. The first couple years, it was like, as soon as we were closed, I was like, hey, thanks. On to the next one. I mean, there was a time where I didn't even do client gifts. <laughs> like I'm embarrassed at how bad my business was in the beginning. I really did start from scratch and have to work my way up to a competent business model. But um, eventually I started to realize, oh, these people aren't just going to relist with me, you know, two years, three years down the road when they're ready to buy something else. I have to maintain these relationships. I have to genuinely have care for the other person on the side of this transaction. This can't just be a number on a sheet. I need to, I need to keep up and, and keep in touch with these people. And the way that I learned that lesson was I had this, uh, this sign call that came in. And they said, hey, we're not going to be buying for like six months. And I was like, okay, I'm going to put you in the six-month bin in my mind, and I'll call you in like five months and <laughs> you know, see if you're ready to buy. Well, the thought just hit me one day, like a month after that, I should call that guy. And that wasn't something I was in the habit of doing at that time. I was pretty, pretty unintentional about my prospecting. Well, I call him and he says, hey, good news. Our timeline's moved up to three months. Well, within a month of that call, he had purchased a $1.6 million home. And at that time, I was not following up with clients. It was, it was a very transactional business. I decided to call him a few days after closing and just say, hey, how do you like the house? And I brought him a nice bottle of wine. And I tried to, I tried to be more intentional, right? This idea was starting to form in my mind of how I should be doing business. And sure enough, he goes, hey, this house is great, but the beach near our house, because we're in a beach town, the beach is really crowded. Could you find me another house around this price? We want to keep this one as a rental, but we want one with a more private beach. So he turned around and bought another $1.6 million house like a month after that. And he's since referred me quite a few clients and, and also done two or three more transactions with me. And it was that was kind of like a light bulb moment that flipped my entire mindset from very transactional to very relational. And so a lot of the prospecting I do, because I've been doing this a while, I've got a database that I can go back and prospect, is past clients. Because... Every past client you've had, or even just potential client you've had, if you've built a relationship at any level with somebody, that is already a better call to make, in my opinion, than a complete cold call. Because it's already warm. Even if you've only talked to them one time, they know your name, they know your face, build on that. Even if they don't buy, they've got plenty of friends and family and colleagues that are going to buy. And if you're their guy, if you're or, or girl and you're consistent with them, they will re they'll recommend you to all their friends and family and colleagues. It'll, you'll start to get referrals. I've got a client that I've been working with for six years now that we are this close to finally getting him his first deal. Finally, after six years, he's never bought or sold anything with me. But I've probably done at least 10 or 15 million dollars in business off of people that he sent my way because he trusts me to actually take care of those people. Because he sees that I've, I've been in it for the long haul with him, and he now knows that I'm going to treat his friends and family with that level of care, not trying to push them into a deal, but really approaching the transaction from an advisory standpoint and really yeah. just doing what's best for them. So that's one way, past clients, nurturing your sphere. But I do also do cold calling. And we can get into kind of my, my system and my strategies for that. But I do, I do recommend having outbound prospecting 
in the sense of, of starting new relationships, not just, you know, nurturing your sphere. However, your sphere, I would say it should be, you know, at least like 70% of what you're doing. How often do you recommend reaching out to your sphere? Well, we all, we all know that we've got that, that tight inner circle of people that we need to be touching on a regular basis, right? We, we all know those best clients that we need to be talking to. If they're warm or if they're hot, like ready to go now, talk to them daily. Be, be intentional with them. Be checking the hot sheet. Be married to the hot sheet. Be checking it when you wake up. Be checking it multiple times a day. Be the first person to send your hot clients the new stuff. Even go so far as to create great relationships with agents within your community, within your brokerage, within your team, and know what they're bringing on market so you can bring it to them ahead of time. Because that's how you create value. Because I promise you, you are not the only agent that they're getting property from. You might be the one they talk to the most, and that's a good thing, but you're not the only one sending them stuff. On average, I think it's I think it's five realtors that the average buyer is in touch with on some level, like on an email blast, something, social media. So you're at least at, a, at, a, at a, just an average level, one out of five. You're already competing, whether you know it or not. So be intentional about getting them information first, the hot ones, people that are not as hot people that you know are going to buy maybe sometime in the next quarter i would probably be touching them once a week to to once every two weeks depending on how warm they are somebody that's going to buy in the next year but they're kind of like on that longer time horizon at least once a month even twice a month would be better and the the way that i kind of use an analogy for that because a lot of my newer agents that i train up are afraid to bother somebody right? They're afraid, well, if they're not really looking to buy right now, I don't want to annoy them. I don't want to be overbearing. The, the, I always encourage real estate agents mentally to kind of step out of the agent box for a second and put themselves in the consumer box. And an easy way to do that is most people have bought and sold a car. Even if you've never bought and sold a house, you've probably bought and sold a car. If you just bought a nice car from the dealership six months ago and your sales rep calls you and says, hey, I'm just thinking of you, uh, it's around that time for oil changes. Do y'all need a you know, like a ceramic coating, or is there anything I can do for you? Do you need anything at all? Are you enjoying the car that you bought? I am not offended by that call. I'm actually really touched that they remembered me, you know. Or if I if I put my name in with them a month ago at the dealership, and they saw me on the lot, and I walked off, and I never bought anything, I don't expect to hear from them because you know the the mentality that that the public has towards salespeople is we're all just looking for the next dollar. And if you ain't it, you're not the one I care about today. Be different than that. Be the one that actually cares. Because see, if that person followed up with you and said, hey, listen, I know you didn't buy last month. I just want to circle back with you. Are you still looking for this type of car? We just had one come on the lot the other day. Actually, we don't even have it out there yet. Do you want to come see it before it's uh, you know out there for the public? You're like, dang, this guy's good. They care about me. They actually are following up with me. They're presenting me with opportunities before other people get it. Like, that's my guy now. And if they do that two or three more times, they may not be my guy after the first call. But man, if they keep doing that, they are going to be my go-to to buy that car. And I'm not going to be offended that they're, they're reaching out to me with good information. So totally. don't be afraid to follow up. Yeah. And so this is obviously some really good advice for people that have past clients' fears, etc., what happens if their, their past kind of sphere is either non-existent or is very small? What are you doing for outbound? Yeah, so first and foremost, for newer agents, I mean, number one, 
go where the buyers are in your market. So if you're in a primary home market, make sure you're sitting open houses, make sure you're in front of people. If you're a social butterfly and you're really good at connecting with people, don't be afraid to go work at a local restaurant or a coffee shop and sit up at the bar and go meet some people. Like you need to get in front of people and build relationships. And, you know, even if you have a past sphere that you can leverage from just growing up in the town you're in or something, right? Anything you can leverage to just, like I said, if it's a warm body that you have a relationship with of any kind, that's better than a completely cold person that's never heard your name. So start there. Start with some relationships that you may have. But if you got nothing, what I love to do, what I highly encourage people to do is find the place you want to work, aim small, miss small, pick a small subsection of your market, a subdivision, a neighborhood, a building, something that you're passionate about that you're like, man, I dream of working that because you're going to get excited every day to work about it. And when that becomes your business, you're going to be thrilled with your results rather than being haphazard and like, you know, lucking into being the the random mobile home king or whatever. Like you're going to really be passionate about the thing you're selling and you're going to be happy with the sphere you build. So number one, be intentional about the sphere you build. Pick it, pick a small subsection of your market, learn it, know it, become an expert on the material of what's selling price per foot. What drives value? Is it proximity to a certain amenity or to the beach or is it rental income or, you know, what, what's the price of new construction versus older construction? Is it, uh, how much does a private pool affect value or, you know what I mean? Like find those drivers, know those drivers, even go so far as to call people who are selling things in that community, ask them, Hey, do you have two minutes of your time? I'm a newer agent. I just really want to know what makes this community special. What do you love about it? I guarantee you most agents will give you like at least a two minute elevator pitch on that neighborhood and you'll learn something that you didn't know. That will help you because as soon as that tool goes in your tool belt and you're in front of a client and you can pull it back out and say, oh yeah, by the way, uh, I'll just give you an example. This is something that happened to me. I, I was shown a community for the first time, called an agent, get, asked them if they could give me their elevator pitch. They told me it has 10,000 feet of private deeded beach and over nine miles of walking trails. I had no clue. Didn't know that at all, but I pulled that out of my tool bag like I had known it for a hundred years. And I told my clients during the show, and they went, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I'm so glad you told me this. Like, we're so glad we have such an expert on this community. And I'm like, I'm like, you know what? I may not have woken up as an expert on this community this morning, but I made sure I became one before I got in front of y'all. And of yeah. course, I'm not telling them that verbally, but in my head, I made sure I was prepared, right? Become an expert on the community. Here's what you do next. Find a buyer either someone that you know that's looking in that community or an agent that you know, find someone that has a buyer. Understand that buyer's specific needs. Where are they from? Why do they want it? What do they want? Understand the story. Then you can go cold call people in that neighborhood that you're now an expert on with a legitimate buyer for their property. You can tell them the backstory of this buyer with a quick little elevator pitch of what they're looking for and ask them if they'd be interested in selling. Even if they say no, you're now an expert in their mind who has buyers, and you can pivot that conversation to see if there's any other way that you could serve them, whether that's, hey, do you guys wanna sit down for 20 minutes and uh, just chat about the value of your property? You know, it's it, not as a listing appointment, but just power, knowledge is power. Make sure that you can leverage the asset you have on any other business dealings you might be doing. I'll give you a quick overview of the market. I'll tell you the value of your house. And if y'all have questions about the market, you can let me know, right? Build relationships, serve people. 
that's a very quick way to start building that database because as you follow up with those people, that's the key. Don't just talk to them once. Talk to them four or five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times because eventually they're going to really start to trust you. You're going to become their go-to, and when they're ready to sell, they're going to call you, and when their friends are ready to buy, they're going to send them to you. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and got an inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. So... You got hyper clarity from this mentor in Alaska, started tracking, started elevating the amount of activity from 50 conversations, 250 conversations into 75 and 100 conversations. Let's talk about your schedule. Like, what did your schedule look like at 100 conversations? How many hours a week were you working? Oh, man. Um, I have a wife and a young son. And so I try really hard not to be a workaholic and, and overwork on my hours. I try to be really productive with the actual hours that I am working. Back when I was doing 20 contacts a week, because I'm not doing that much now, I've, I've shifted my business a little bit um, just towards a higher quality, lower quantity, and also towards managing my team. Um, back then, I was probably spending at least three to four hours a day on the phone like not not on the phone negotiating offers, not on the phone handling the the fires that come up in deals or any of that, just three to four hours prospecting, period. And then I had, you know, four or five, six hours of all the other stuff to do. I mean, at one point I had um, almost 20 homes pending at the same time with no assistant, putting out all those fires and still finding the three to four hours <laughs> to be on the phone prospecting. You were dealing with 20 pendings, prospecting three hours a day, handling all the files and no assistant? Yes. Yeah. I had, I had a, um, a, a sort of kind of transaction coordinator that I borrowed from a friend for a bit, but <laughs> it, wasn't, uh, it definitely wasn't like a full-on assistant. It was um, just uh, able to respond to a few emails for me here and there, but ultimately I was doing the vast majority of it by myself. It was, I don't recommend it. It was intense. And that's really, really, really intense. I, I just remember being maybe three years in the business and I, I was having this transaction with an agent and we had 20 in pending too, but it was, it was a team. It wasn't just one person. Right. And, and this agent, you know, he comes to me and he goes, Oh my gosh, I got three transactions in escrow. And he wanted to be like, bow down to him, you know? And it's like, boy, if you knew what was out there, like what we're doing, what other people, like you're doing what our team was doing uh, by yourself yeah. with no assistant, which is 
really, really wild. Um, at what point did you start to shift? I mean, cause like handling 20 by yourself while still prospecting is, that's not a sustainable future. So no. what point did you start to pivot? Well, so my whole business has been, if, if anyone's ever read the book Atomic Habits by James Clear, highly recommend that book. The, the gist of it is little habits done consistently over time compound into very large results. And that's kind of been the, the story of my business is just little by little learning. My shift came when I realized how much volume I was doing and how stressed out I was and that my market had a higher dollar price point I could be operating at. At the time, my average sales price was like 750000 because I would do uh, you know, a one, two, three million dollar deal and I would do a $50,000 lot and a $200,000 condo. And I was just kind of doing everything and anything that came. The shift for me came when I drew a line in the sand and I said, anything below a million dollars, I'm going to refer out. Unless it is a past client that I've, I highly value as a relationship and I want to maintain working with them because I know they're going to do some of these larger deals, I'm going to refer it out. Even if that means losing a client and giving them to somebody else, I have to focus on the high end. And this is where I said before, aim small, miss small. Focus your business where you want to be. It is highly, highly unusual for someone to accidentally become the luxury guy in their market. They focused on that sphere. I know a guy in our market who went from $0 in sales to $100 million two years in a row. So $200 million in production over two years in his first two years. Because he took a very high-end subdivision and said, I'm going to own this subdivision. This is mine. And he did $70 million of transactions in that one subdivision. His oh, next gross. closest competitor did 18. So let's talk about that. What was his full marketing strategy in that subdivision to own it? You know, I wish I had his full playbook because I would start, yeah. I'd start running it. <laughs> R&D, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think a lot of what he did was definitely print marketing hitting them. And that's something that's been very successful for us, high level postcards. Um, a strategy that he uses that I think is also very effective is rather than sending a thousand postcards, if you have a thousand postcards to send, rather than sending them to a thousand people and touching a thousand people one time, pick a hundred people and touch them 10 times, right? Because it's highly, highly likely you're going to get some listings out of that little subset of a hundred than just shotgun blasting a thousand people. And I think that's somewhat counterintuitive. A lot of people think, well, the more people I touch, the more likely I am to get a listing. But what the data shows is you need to hit somebody with postcards, emails, social media, um, in-person contact, phone calls. Like you have to touch them six, seven, eight times consistently in a small period of time, like six weeks or less. You know, six by six is kind of the, the golden rule that I was always taught was six touches in six weeks minimum to get a client. Otherwise you're just wasting money and wasting time. So that's again, why I say like focus on a small subset, do, do postcard marketing, do handwritten notes, cold call these people and follow up with them on important sales in the neighborhood that you've made or someone else made. Or again, like the best thing to do is bring them a buyer because that's a great way to start a conversation and at least establish yourself as an expert who has the buyers for that kind of a caliber of a house, right? Go be present in that market. 
go work from one of the coffee shops there, have lunch there. Like, you know what I mean? Go to the, go to the local events and the charities and the things like be present in the market, show your face, let people know who you are. And in as many ways as you can create connections, do so. And so the decision for you was a kind of a combination decision, right? It was the decision to make a million dollars, your bottom line, minimum client, uh, you know, transaction value. And then it was also the strategic uh, strategy to dominate a specific area. So give us an idea. What does the market size look like in your, you know, criteria? How, how many homes, how many buyers and sellers exist in that frame? I try to focus my efforts on 200 homes or less. And even that could be considered a big box. You know, that's, but I, I want to cast a, a little bit of a wider net for myself because our market is a second home market. It's somewhat random. Who's going to transact? Um, I like to keep it under 200 homes. That's kind of the size range I'm looking for. And they're very intentional choices on homes that I genuinely do want to list in an area that I genuinely want to be. So the Caleb Spears playbook is a 200 home. And, and you're going to hit these people a lot of times. Like, let's look at it from high level, to low level. How many times do you want to hit these people in a year? If you count all the different ways you're contacting them. I'd love to hit uh, probably a good 25, 30 times between mailers that I'm sending out. Like one of the strategies that I've started implementing recently that's been generating results is no matter what I sell, because what I used to do is if I sold something in that feeder market, that was when I was sending out a postcard to him. Hey, I just sold the neighbor's house. Now I'm sending them all the business that I do from anywhere so that they keep seeing, oh man, this guy's out here working. He's, he's making sales happen. So I'm wanting to touch them with all of my sales. I want to hit them with quarterly marketing reports that are, are professionally made and generated and, and full of useful information, not just random jargon and filler, right? I want them to see that I'm an expert in their market. Then I want to follow that up with a call ask them if they got the report or ask them if they got my mail or ask them if they saw that sale, create a personal connection that way. Then I might follow up that conversation. If I had a good phone call with someone, I might send them a handwritten note. I might drop that in the mail to them. Hey, I just really appreciated your time. Thank you for taking the time, right? As you continue to do that, there's a reason they call it a farm area. Some of the crops are going to be ready to go right now. You're going to get that one person that's ready to list right now, but the trap yeah. realtors fall into is they're always just looking for that guy to answer the phone rather than farming the other 99 out of 100 people that aren't ready right now and consistently keeping in touch with them in a variety of these ways in a manner that makes them feel like it's not, it's not robotic, it's not overly corporatized, like that you actually do care. And I think that's important to try to create um, a human element in it. That's why I love phone calls. That's why I love showing my face in a community and letting them see that I'm involved. That's why I love a handwritten note because it shows a level of care that a lot of people are too busy to provide. And I would much rather list 10 high value homes that I'm excited about in a place I'm excited about than a hundred homes of the same value shotgun across the board that I don't have the bandwidth to truly service well and make the same money doing so. Like to me, it's, it's a no brainer to have a high quality business model because 
for me personally, like I have to have that connection to what I'm doing beyond just the dollars for to wake up excited every day. Totally. Yeah. So let's walk through, like if a new agent was thinking about this, what's the budget to run this 200 home marketing plan? Mm. I'd have to go pull up our spreadsheet. I got an accountant that does the math for me. Um, you know, the postcards that we generate are a little bit over a dollar per pop. So they're like a dollar 10, a dollar 20 a piece. Um, so it's not very expensive to hit people with mailers. I mean, you're generally spending like 250 bucks per mailer, which in my, it depends on your price point, right? Like for me, if I'm marketing to two to $10 million homes, you know, <laughs> that's a very good ROI. I'm happy with that. Now you might have to, to, um, take a look at that as a new agent and go, okay, am I marketing to mostly hundred thousand or $200,000 properties? And is, is my ROI worth that? I would argue even still, yes. Even if you're on a team and you're a 50, 50 split, you know, more than likely you could probably talk to your team lead and see if they would be willing to at least split the cost with you, if not cover the cost of marketing. Um, if you sell a $200,000 house, you're still making 2000 bucks roughly. Right. So that's a 10 X return on that $200 initial investment. Not a bad deal. Right. And so 200, $200, $250 on postcards, handwritten notes. Um, I, I buy a stack of, uh, of a thousand for, I think we spend like three, $400 on those. We get really high quality ones, uh, that, that feel nice when you touch them and the paper's high quality. Cause I want, I'm marketing to luxury houses. I want them to feel the quality and everything that I do. And I would recommend that no matter where you're marketing, stand out, you know, be a cut above in that, in that space. But if you're just starting out, do what you can, you know, go on, go on a Vista printer express docs and get what's affordable for you. The key is the handwritten part. The key is the personal touch, right? Phone calls don't cost a dime. Following up on phone calls is nothing. Um, I've got, there's an app called Forewarn um, that's available through my MLS. I don't know if all MLSs carry it. You'll have to check with your local people and see. Uh, it's, it's a good tool to be able to reverse prospect people. You can plug in their name and it'll spit out a list of possible phone numbers for that person. Love that app. I use LandGlide as another app. I think that it's like 10 bucks a month, if that, uh, it's super inexpensive and you can basically go down the subdivision and it'll, it'll pull the names from the tax records for you. You can just hover over them and just go one by one and go, all right, John Smith, plug that into forewarn. All right, Mary Sue, plug that into four. All right, now I can just call these people just going down the list, right? I don't even have to pay a Red X or someone like that to generate a list for me. I can generate my own list for very, very inexpensive. Um, and again, when you're when you're focusing on a small area, that works really well because you don't have to have a list of a thousand people to call. Um, I tried that. I wanted to beat my head against a wall. It was miserable. <laughs> Um, so really it's not that expensive when you actually do the math. It's, it's, it's more about consistency than anything. It's more about, um, having the discipline to really just execute over time. Because I think a lot of people, if they don't see results in a week or a month, they get really discouraged, but it takes time to build trust with people. You know, I come from a market where there's maybe 30,000 people that live here full time. We get two, three, four million visitors in the summer. Um, but there's only like 30,000 of us that actually live here and, almost 6,000 of us are realtors. So, I mean, you could basically throw a stone and hit a realtor around here. I mean, they're everywhere, right? I mean, literally, so, like you said, one in five. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's, for me, it's how do I differentiate myself from everybody else? Because like I said, on average, they're talking to at least five realtors minimum, right? That's, that's just an average. A lot of people are in, in my area probably are in contact with seven, eight, nine, ten 10 realtors, including their cousin and their friends. And, you know, the guy that they met at the restaurant that was super nice. And it's like, how do I set myself apart? Number one, it's going to be the consistency with which I talk to them. Number two, it's going to be my expertise in the market. And my, do I know my stuff? When somebody asks me, how is the market doing? What is my house worth? What's going on in my neighborhood? I want to have concrete information to give them. Not just a, it feels this way. Oh, it's really hot. Like most realtors, that's the way they speak. Differentiate yourself by becoming an expert and being masterful with how you speak about a property and about a neighborhood and about your market with concrete data and don't just vomit numbers at them. Learn to tell the story of what's going on in your market with the facts and the data because facts tell, but stories sell. And an example of that is like people ask me what happened during the COVID boom and all these things because our market went ballistic like most markets over the course of the pandemic. And I will basically tell the story of when the pandemic first hit, our inventory dropped below 1,500 properties available market-wide for the first time in market history. We were used to carrying five to 6,000 properties at a time. That's a stat. I just told a story with it. You barely even notice, but it gives you an idea of like, oh my God, three times less inventory. That's crazy. And then I'll tell them, hey, the inventory recovered to about 2,000 to 2,500, but as the market began to take off, we couldn't put it on the shelves as fast as it was getting taken off. And so even though the listing amount of inventory coming on market was healthy, it stayed in that 2,000 to 2,500 range all of 2020, almost all of 21. And then right around the end of 21, we started to see a possible correction coming in the data trends. But a few things happened at the end of 21 that caused a lot of fear in the market. And when fear enters the market, sellers pull back because they go, okay, I have this known quantity and I really don't want to give it up for, for the unknown because I'm afraid, right? So we had a rumors of a war between Russia and Ukraine that ended up materializing. We had a new uh, COVID strain called Omicron that everyone on the news was saying was going to be the most virulent strain. It was going to spread. Everyone in the country was going to get it. Nobody knew what was going to happen. No one knew if more shutdowns were coming or what the deal was going to be. So everybody that was a seller pulled back and they said, okay, I don't want to sell. I'm going to stay with what I've got because at least if it shuts down, I can go back to the beach, which is where we're at. Meanwhile, the, the, the government was saying, hey, just so y'all know, don't get too comfortable with these interest rates. We're raising them in Q1 of next year. So all the buyers got afraid and they said, man, we got to buy while the getting's still good because we're going we're gonna to see record interest rates potentially next year. I've got to buy right now. So the inventory shrank. The buyer demand went through the roof. And that's what resulted in quarter one in our market of 2022 being absolutely nuts. And then, of course, when I, and I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll even pull up a map of data trends. I use a, a website called Trend Graphics to do that yeah. if anyone wants to, to go out there and get it. But I'll show them the map, and you can actually see as soon as the interest rates hit, you see transaction volume start to drop. You see inventory start to climb. And so I can show them these stats without word vomiting numbers at them where their eyes glaze over because I've, I've made that mistake before too. And I just, I kind of just drip the stats in, but I'm able to tell a story to wrap their minds around where the market's at. And then I'm able to also kind of give them an opinion of where it might be headed. And now all of a sudden I've established myself as an expert in their mind and I'm giving them concrete data 
to understand the market. Whereas someone else might go, I don't know, it was crazy. And now it's not, I don't know what to tell you. You know, they don't, they don't have a full understanding of that. What you've done here is so powerful. But I mean, like for those that have studied like Chris Voss and a lot of the, the science, it's like people make decisions based on emotion, which is why story works so well. But then they oftentimes need reasons to justify why they feel a certain way, right? Which is the facts. And, and, the, and the fact that you're embedding the facts into the stories is giving them both, right? It's giving them what they want to feel emotionally and then giving them reasons to justify. Like, this is really, really powerful. There's no doubt why you've gotten to $100 million in sales. And I love how you've done it in a very, very narrow way. I mean, you're looking at this like, I'm trying to like add numbers to stack what could be possible of your expenses. You're, you're under $10,000 a year of expenses on this model, easily, maybe even under five or $6,000. And you're able to churn out 25, 50 million plus in volume. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I also run a team with my brother and so we've got salaries and we have a, we have a marketing staff that we pay and, you know, things like that. Like there's, there's fees on top of that, but that's going to vary depending on the market you're in, depending on what your brokerage offers you, um, you know, a lot of our marketing staff is in-house. I work at um, Compass, if anyone's familiar with that, the national brokerage. And so we have an in-house marketing department we're able to partner with. And so some of those pieces will look different for everybody. Um, but yeah, I mean, you don't have to blow the bank if you're intentional on what you're doing with the dollars that you're spending. Love it. Caleb Spears, man, thank you so much for dropping so much knowledge on us. There was so much tactical in here and just great advice from the tracking to how to create a hundred million dollar business uh, on, I would, I would even say on a budget. Um, so guys, if you're out there listening, write down something that you learned that resonated with you, apply it to your business, share it with somebody you know, so they can hold you accountable uh, because freedom is required one action at a time. And if you take steps day by day before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 